to another Charity Chat podcast with your host, Usman Mughal. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Lisa Rose, Philanthropy Programme Manager at the Beacon Collaborative, and Vic Thrift, Director at Savanta. In this conversation, we discuss a report which Beacon and Savanta published on the 22nd of April, 2021, titled The Giving Needs of the Future Wealthy. And this research has been funded by Arts Council England. While a considerable amount of research has been carried out on the general barriers to charitable giving in the past, little has focused on the up-and-coming wealthy and their relationship with philanthropy. And this research seeks to address this gap in knowledge. We explore the five key myths and misconceptions about the next generation of wealth givers. And we discuss how can charities and fundraisers more meaningfully engage with this audience. We also discuss what impact, if any, the pandemic will have on potential giving in the future. And we cover how some organisations are more effectively working in partnership with philanthropists. Lisa and Vic also share what they love about the sector and what are their main frustrations. This podcast is brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Charity People. And here is my conversation with Lisa and Vic. Lisa and Vic, I'm delighted to have you both on Charity Chat today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Before we launch into discussing the report, which was recently published, titled The Giving Needs of the Future Wealthy, I wanted to get insight into both of your backgrounds. So if we can start with you, Lisa, and then followed by Vic. Sure. So my background is incredibly random. I started life as an aeronautical engineer in the Royal Air Force. I moved into international development by humanitarian demining and have spent about 10 years doing international development, largely living in the bush in Africa for different organizations and two years in India working for a technology incubator supporting social enterprises. And I've been the programs manager at Beacon for just over 18 months now delivering the strategy and outputs and programs and research for the Beacon Collaborative in its quest to increase philanthropy in the UK. Fantastic. Hi, um, I'm Vic. My um, my background is really a, a, from a specialism in qualitative research. So I have forever and a day <laughs> been working, um, talking to people um, all around the world and all across the UK about lots of different things. Um, but currently I have a specialism focused in on the wealthy um, and that covers all sorts of things from how they how they um, how they bank, the products they choose, how they shop, the things they buy. Um, but obviously within that, there's a really important kind of philanthropy aspect. Um, and that's very much kind of the bedrock of um, my experience. Thank you, Lisa. and Thank you, Vic. Um, great to hear your varied backgrounds and for sharing that with us today. So I wanted to start off how the partnership came about between Savanta and the Beacon Collaborative. Savanta and um, the Beacon Collaborative have been working together for a little while now. 
Um, it started with um, some broader mass kind of studies looking into the, the giving behaviour of the, the UK population. Um, and that over time has evolved into a, a closer partnership. So we are we are now kind of a, a listed partner with Beacon Collaborative. We we do um, a, a lot more work um, looking into the ways that, that the wealthy across the UK are, are giving. For our work, it's really important that it's underpinned by fact and not fiction. And Savannah are the people that can provide us with that facts on which to to actually look at how we increase philanthropy in the UK. Um, a lot of our work, especially outreach to the media and government, requires numbers for them to actually understand what we're trying to say and to build on and for us to understand the effectiveness of what we're doing as well. So Savannah is a, a crucial partner in delivering that information um, in a trusted manner in order for us to build Beacon's progress as well. So we have some underlying continuous work that we do on a quarterly basis to provide basic data on, on giving in the UK across the population. And then we work on much more specific, much more in-depth projects when we get the funding um, that we can, can do. But it's very much a partnership rather than a business arrangement. And as Vic says, has been evolving over time into something quite close. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Vic, for sharing that. And some excellent research has come out following your partnership and the sector at large is benefiting from that as well. And I know that will continue long into the future. I now wanted to get an understanding into why was the research into this particular area that we're discussing today, which is the giving needs of the future wealthy. Why was that needed? And what were the key areas and key findings of the report itself? I think that as we were discussing the, the project over time, and it has evolved from our original concept. And what we started to understand was that there was a broad-based understanding of next-generation wealth inheritors across the globe, really, about their attitudes, about the way they want to be different and the way they use their wealth and their privilege to, to be better citizens and part of civil society. But there was this group of people who were maybe first generation large wealth wealth earners who were professionalized people in a career path who would over their lifetime earn a considerable amount of money but actually had never been captured by the charity sector at all and we started to understand that if we don't capture their interest early on, they will just continue to be low level donors. But there is a, a wish within this group to be higher level donors, they just didn't understand how to do it. And so we're scared to make that first big step. So as we started to look into what type of research would be really useful, we realized that this was a niche area that hadn't actually been covered by anybody at all. And that we had this great potential to start to understand people, um, whereby we could change people who were maybe giving a couple of hundred pounds a year to start to give a couple of thousands of pounds a year to over their lifetime be giving hundreds of thousands of pounds because of their potential to move forward on their career path and generate a lot of wealth for themselves, who were inherently generous people, but didn't have a, a, a deep understanding of the charity sector. I was just gonna, I was just gonna build on that because I, I think something around the, the process of the work we did is, is probably quite important. This is this is by its very nature a, a small scale study because of the the kind of the the niche 
scale of the audience, um, but also because we really wanted to get into the, the weeds a little bit with these people to really unpick what it is that matters to them, the way they're behaving, the kinds of things that are going to engage them more, I guess, with their giving. Um, so the, the process itself in terms of the research was um, we went through a whole series of different kind of stages with this. Um, firstly, kind of setting out the lay of the land, um, understanding from the sector itself, what do you already know? What do you think really matters to this audience to simply help us build up a, a kind of hypothesis framework from which to work? Um, then we, we, we pulled in a, a whole host of um, young, wealthy individuals and we we shared with them an individual task. So to, to get them and allow them that space to talk to us sort of one-to-one -one quite privately about the things that they did before then pulling people into small group sessions where we could really sort of all talk together about how to move things forward. Thank you, Vic, and thank you, Lisa. And I know Deacon and Savanta held a launch event earlier this year to launch the report itself. And what we'll do at Charity Chat is share that with our audience so they can have a deeper understanding into the key findings of the report. But today, what I really wanted to focus on, which I think is a really important aspect of this, is the key myths and misconceptions. So I just wanted to get an understanding of what are the key myths and misconceptions about the next generation of wealth earners, who are, as you rightly mentioned, potential donors for the future. And from the research, what can organizations and fundraisers do? How can they more meaningfully engage with this audience? Just from the initial kind of piece of this work where we, we went out and we spoke to lots of um, lots of people within the within the sector to understand really what do what do organizations operating with an audience that's younger, that's wealthier, what do you think really matters to, to this this cohort of um, individuals? Now there were five kind of specific things, I guess, specific areas where, where we thought we were going to hear real kind of confirmation, I guess, back from our participants. But the reality was, was relatively different. So the, the, the first thing we heard is that, that actually from the charity perspective, there was a real view that, that systemic issues and systemic change was going to be a real driver of, of giving for this audience. Um, now, what we what we actually saw happening with our participants is that systemic change is absolutely an issue and it's on their radars and it's something they're aware of. Um, and they're very keen to kind of see these big broad scale changes happen to ensure a kind of fairer and just society for everybody. But but really what's happening is they're not necessarily connecting their charitable giving with that level of change. It feels much more immediate. It tends to be much more local um, and it tends to be about um, almost that sort of changing one life at a time sort of ethos um, around the gifting that they are doing. Just to carry on with this, this point around systemic issues is that that actually within all of that, they do see activism as a, as a tool for changing and making change and exerting political pressure. But again, it's something that isn't necessarily linked to the way that they are, they are giving today. The other fact we had is that data and um, hard numbers and understanding on a really sort of um, information-led level would probably be quite important. There was a view that this, this is a generation that has grown up being used to kind of pulling in all of that information. There's a whole heap of things around big data and AI and all of these things that are actually going to help people understand and, and navigate the space. And that may be a way to engage these younger donors. Um, but in reality, what we really heard was actually still the kind of the compelling nature of a story, giving still feeling very, it's very emotional, it's very personal. It's it's actually the, the, the main sort of driver of that giving is that overwhelming sort of desire to help. 
Um, and when they do gift, they actually want to hear the stories about what happens with that money. They want to know, you know, not necessarily their specific donation, but they want to hear what's and all what's happened, the changes that have been made, any mistakes that have been made and what's been learned from that. It's a real um, desire for both a story, but also then an honest conversation about, about what happens after. Um, we heard that innovation is probably going to be really important with um, engaging um, and capturing the attention of those younger donors. Um, and this idea really was focused around innovation being effectively technology to, <laughs> to all extents and purposes. Now, Technology plays a really important role in terms of kind of facilitating giving. Um, there are definitely ways that that some of that storytelling and some of that information can be kind of brought to life and, and get in front of people, certainly via social media and lots of other channels. Um, but really, the, the, the kind of technological innovation that they were after was things to help them gift more strategically or to use their volunteering time more strategically, sort of looking for something that like aggregates something for them or, or pulls that information into to one place for them. With thinking about um, those younger millennial donors and, and their sort of outlook on the world, um, another um, hypothesis that we had was that actually they will be seeking to be a force for good in sort of everything that they're doing um, and that 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 sort of behavior in theory would be happening across lots of different things that they are doing from the the choices they're making about what products to buy to the types of financial services organizations that they're dealing with and also thinking about their giving now I think what we actually heard is that Yes, they are trying to be a force for good. Yes, they are thinking about these things and they're trying to do their best in each of these things. But that's an awful lot of behaviours <laughs> that people are having to kind of assess and think about. And, and what we really see is that, that charity sits as a, another one of the things that they do rather than being about kind of their identity. It's not necessarily tied into that same sort of value. I'm, I'm a force for good in the world and I'm doing all of these things. It's more like I am a good person, therefore I am doing these different sets of things that will help kind of validate that within my world. Um, they do think about um, the different issues that they're passionate about, um, but what they don't do necessarily is join up the dots between I've gifted this amount here and I've gifted this amount here. Each little act of giving feels kind of very unconnected from another one. It's not a strategic overview. The very last thing that we heard in terms of the five, the five um, big kind of topic areas that we thought were going to come out from this is that that campaigning, raising awareness, those sorts of things around the causes that they really care about would be extremely important to them. And it'd be something they'd be they'd be out there doing and and kind of um taking on themselves to do that. Um, but actually the the giving that they do do is is almost a very uncomfortable topic. Um, there's a sense that there's personal giving, which you're doing from your own funds, from your own um, earnings, from your own um, uh, funds. And that actually is, it's kind of all linked up in a horrible mire of, of, of awkwardness in lots of ways. So, you know, firstly, it opens the door to how wealthy are you, how much do you earn? It kind of opens up a nasty kind of can of worms there when you're thinking about maybe somebody who's a, a wealth creator amongst a set of peers who maybe aren't as well off as they are. Um, but it also opens that broader conversation around personal finances and it just has a horrible link back to that and the kind of the privacy of uh, around kind of talking about money. Similarly with activism, and as I mentioned earlier, it's it's something they think is very important. They support um, a lot of the, the movements in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, but actually there is, for some of the individuals we spoke to, certainly there was, there was almost a kind of a, 
a side note of trouble that kind of came through from it, almost a very sort of traditional kind of conservative sort of view of things. Um, that wasn't the, the, the stretch across everybody we spoke to by no means, but certainly certainly activism felt to be in a very separate camp for them from, um, from uh, their charitable giving and behaviours. The only exception to things that they are happy to talk about is when they have been fundraising themselves. Um, so if they are involved in an event of some kind or they have organised an event at that point, they're very, very happy to get out there, to spread the word, to talk about it. Um, but even then, that tends to be about what they have done and the efforts that they have made, not necessarily about the cause itself, which is often kind of contained in this box of being something very important and something very relevant. But the detail is often missing around that. What we came out with was a list of 10 major things that charities could actually take on board and move away with and start to engage more on a different level with these types of donors. And different charities would take a different view on what would be the most important priority action based on how much they thought they could tap into this donor base um, and how much time they wanted to spend on that. These donors being largely at the minute thinking about things which are a bit more close to home. So charities that involve children, charities that involve medical issues, which have perhaps affected family members, charities that involve their local area. So they're very much focused on those types of charities who could take a different view on how to increase their fundraising from, from this group of donors than the charities who sit outside that natural realm for them. But one of the biggest underlying things that we found was that language was not a common thing that people understood. When charities speak about impact and when these donors speak about impact, it means two very different things to them. And that's not to criticize either side, it's just it means something different. People who work in a corporate world use the same words, but they use them to mean something very different. And charities really need to bridge that gap and start to understand what the language is that these donors are using and try to meet them in the middle and say, well, okay, then this means this to us. So either explain what they mean or choose the language to make it understandable to the donors. And that would really change the, the way that they could build a relationship and the potential for this relationship to be longer term. The other thing that, that they can start to do is to situate the local in the global. As Vic talked about, many times people look very locally and don't see activism and don't see their charitable giving as part of a holistic approach to life. So whilst people are doing their recycling and doing environmental things in their households or maybe in their thinking, they don't link it to charity. It's not something that's a, that's a whole world view for them. And charities really need to start to explain how their work situates in the bigger picture, be that within the SDGs, be that within a national, being part of civil society as a, as a national output. And that's something that people don't really comprehend yet or understand. Also, Vic spoke a little bit as well about how people aren't really prepared to speak out. And that the one time we found that people really wanted to talk within their friendship group was if they'd done fundraising rather than giving. And but there was a, an impetus to do fundraising together and also to speak out. So charities can do two things. They can start to look at creating giving circles of peer donors who might not know each other, but might actually encourage each other 
to, to donate. At Beacon, we've done some research on cause-related networks, which can also help to support this type of giving circle. Um, the other thing that they can do is to equip their fundraisers to actually speak out better about the charity. So when fundraisers are speaking, it's not about themselves, it's about the organization, but they need the materials with which to do that and the understanding of what the charity actually does, which sometimes isn't deep enough for them because they have this emotional link rather than this deep intelligent link with a lot of the giving that they're doing. And a lot of these events are quite tired now. Fundraisers are tired of doing marathons or bake sales or car washes. We need to start being innovative about how we engage with people in fundraising events um, because it's not just the fundraisers that are tired. We heard a lot of the time that people are very tired of sponsoring other people and that it gets exhausting at work when sponsorship forms are passed around and you feel obliged not to just sponsor but to sponsor to the same amount as the people on the form before you and that fatigue of sponsorship is something that we really need to get over and try and find new ways of engaging people um, with those kind of events. The other thing that charities can really look at is how they engage with volunteers. Volunteering was seen as something which was incredibly difficult, incredibly time consuming, and incredibly um, something that you really had to engage with deeply before you started. Whereas giving was seen as something that you could do by text message in the queue at the shop or by a direct debit that you set up and then never think about again. Volunteering was seen as something with much more depth and much more seriousness. So many people didn't enter into volunteering because they felt that they didn't have the time, the energy or the understanding to do it. So it's possible to start to look at volunteering in a very different way so that we can start to engage people who are a little bit time poor, but actually incredibly intelligent and incredibly generous and want to do something but not have to make a commitment for 10 hours a week to volunteering. And we also heard a lot that the workplace was quite important in giving. So there is a space for businesses to really work together with charities to create workplace giving, matched funding, volunteer time. Um, so charities should be looking to find corporates who match them in their ethical or workspace kind of interests and start to work together to engage employees for earlier in their journey. And we really do believe that effort now for people in their 20s and 30s will really bear fruit, but it might not bear fruit for 15 years, but it will bear a lot of fruit in 15 years time if we put a little bit of effort in now. That's excellent, Vic and Lisa. Such an insightful piece, firstly, to identify what the myths are, but also what organisations and fundraisers can do. Of course, it seems like we can't have a conversation these days without mentioning the pandemic. And that's where I wanted to turn my attention to next. What impact do you think, if any, that the pandemic will have on the potential giving in the future? Or do you think it's too early to tell I think it's very early to tell anything. I think that there, there are some initial signs of interesting trends coming. Um, from our research into millennials, a lot of people started to realise just how lucky they really were to still have their house and their car and their job and their kids in a safe place. And that had spurred more giving towards things like hardship funds and to individuals than previously people had perhaps thought of. 
And so not necessarily giving more, but giving in a very different way to very different causes because they felt empathy with people. And often we heard the, the type of there but for the grace of God go I type thing where I can empathize with people because maybe I could have been in that position if I hadn't been so fortunate. And so people have been trying to shift their their giving to actually help these individuals that they see as as deserving of some help because the position that they're in is not through their own fault. So I think we have um, Beacon and Savannah have been doing, as I said, this other piece of underlying constant quarterly research. And some very interesting findings came out of that, that in the first wave of donations after the first lockdown in March last year, women and young people raised their donations quite considerably in response to the first lockdown. So this emotional response came from women and from young people and their donations spiked whereas men were a little bit more circumspect. But in the longer term, older people and the male donors have actually given more and more sustainably over the long term. So it took them time to grow their donations. And of course, this is a, a sweeping generalization, but based on, but it is based on data that we have that you can see on our website. But so totally different reactions, potentially based on um, emotion in the first case and fear of their own economic circumstances in the second case. And as time went on and the, these people, you know, maybe in their 40s and the, the men who were family providers realised that their situation was more stable and they would keep their jobs and they, they weren't going to be decimated in their savings or their investments, have started to really come out of the woodwork and be very, very generous now that they are in a safe place as well. So that's a really interesting trend that we're seeing. We continue to monitor that um, and publish reports based on that on a, a quarterly basis with Savanta. Vic, you want to come in there? Sure. Just the just the um, the other thing to say is is that while we were conducting the research itself and having these conversations with people, we were um, still in lockdown to varying um, tier systems. I think at that stage around the country. Um, so it was there was definitely like it was absolutely prevalent and in people's mind as a kind of context. And I think the, the biggest demonstration of some of those those points that Lisa has raised is that actually one of the topic areas we, we spoke about with people is around giving to arts and culture. Now, um, there's lots of data that proves that that, that as a as a giving sector um, tends to fall quite low down people's priority lists. And sure enough, we had um, some very similar points around this um, in the in the feedback from our participants. Um, but I think the, the one thing that had happened is that there had been such a huge focus on the impact on the entertainment industry that it had it had changed the kind of the view from some of our participants. It was no longer necessarily just about big art galleries and massive events and huge celebrity donations. It actually transformed into a story of regular people um, absolutely completely out of work, completely suffering um, economically as a result of the, the pandemic. So there, there was this kind of new facet of kind of understanding, I guess, being built up um, from our participants as a result of that. Thank you both. So we, we've discussed what the myths are We've discussed what organizations and fundraisers can do, and we've discussed the impact of the pandemic. Has there been anything in the research that you both conducted that has surprised you or that you didn't think would come up? I think from my perspective, 
that there was something absolutely about the the sheer scale of giving that's happening in in people's worlds um and just sort of how frequent and how like sometimes quite small some of this gifting can be and it's it's happening all the time every day all over the place um i think um Lisa, you have a, a lovely um, clip of, uh, of one of our, uh, our participants explaining exactly the kind of the scope of, of their giving. And it's this kind of relentless run list of all of the things that they're doing. But all of those things just happening like this, then this, then this, then this, then this. And none of it really ever being kind of connected. Um, and that I found really, really interesting just um, from my own perspective and, and taking the way that I donate relatively like not as strategically, perhaps maybe as, as Lisa and perhaps as I maybe ought to. Um, but certainly like focused in on like a few key charities for me, myself that I think are, are, are really um, important and useful. But actually the, the participants simply just gifting all the time all over the place. And that actually bundles up to an awful lot of money that could make a real difference in a particular area they're interested in I think that's that's the thing that really captured me that's really nice and positive I think for me you know I've been a volunteer and a donor my entire life from university and involved in the charity sector in various different ways and so there are things which I assume people understand when I speak and one of the things that became clear is that actually they don't because I'm speaking in a jargon which is just not normal in in the rest of the world and it it has shown how much the charity sector has failed to communicate how important it is what it really does and how it does it and these popular misconceptions that people have read in scandalous newspapers that have made them very reluctant to give to core costs for instance and this massive misunderstanding of what these things mean and how important they are means that we have a huge hurdle from the third sector to get over in order to support the population as a whole to understand what it is we actually do why we do it and why it's so important and an integral part of of the fabric of, of civil society that that we can't afford to lose and i think for me that has been quite a revelation and the other thing would be the piece about volunteering, that people see it as such a commitment and so hard. And yet from a personal level, I see it as just so incredibly rewarding that I would never leave it out of my life. But until you've got into it, you don't get that. And the first steps into volunteering have been made so difficult or are perceived to be so difficult that people don't do it. But I don't think it's true. And again, it's not that the charity sector is doing something wrong. It's just that we're communicating some of these things very badly. Um, and we need to be better at communicating succinctly in the right language and in the right forums and the right materials to actually engage with people at a younger age to understand what we do. So I understand that Savannah and Beacon both work very closely with charities. And I just wanted to get your perspective of how encouraged you are in terms of the steps that charities have taken to engage more meaningfully with major donors and also set up systems and processes and strategies that will allow us to fundraise more effectively in the years ahead. There are a few charities that I've worked with recently that have 
done quite revolutionary stuff in terms of refocusing their major donor giving departments, understanding of philanthropists, um, and trying to build relationships. Philanthropists in general sort of object and understandably to being seen as just a wallet or a checkbook. And it's really important that they understand what they're doing, that they're engaged, that they have a voice. Um, and I am seeing increasingly charities and philanthropists coming together much better in a much more long-term relationship building way that is really productive for the future. And we have to learn from those really good examples and do it more and more and more. Um, I think COVID has also shown how, how adaptable foundations and trusts have been in terms of the way they donate and people like London funders leading the way in terms of understanding how to react to a crisis like this. And we at Beacon in particular are trying to promote some of those good practices down through individual philanthropists and family foundations, as well as the larger trusts and foundations. Also working really hard with other philanthropists and with fundraisers and charities in order to showcase ways in which people have done really good work together. And therefore the relationship and building relationships can be so fruitful and here are some ways that people have done that that have been incredibly successful so there is change there's a way to go but we're definitely in places really going down a really good route Nick did you want to add anything on that I, I guess the the one thing I, I I can say actually is based on one of the stories from one of the participants that we spoke to in that they um they were well it's a couple of stories actually so the the first was around um an individual who'd, who'd got very closely involved with a charity um, or actually with a specific set of fundraising rather. Um, and that was that was fundraising designed specifically to fund a PhD post to uh, research the, the particular syndrome that that um, was part of the, the background within it. And actually for that audience and the, the people within that, that session on that day, the idea of doing something like that, where you feel like you're actively contributing towards kind of making a, a big change and something that's really focused and dedicated on solving a particular problem, that really spoke very strongly to all of them um, and maybe, you know, a, a kind of a source of inspiration. Um, but the other thing I thought was really lovely was, and it potentially may have been prompted partly by um, lockdown community building that, that I think um, happened to most people in their neighbourhoods, but actually this real drive of these kind of small local groups of, of individuals all just coming together to work together. Um, uh, particularly, we, I think we, we spoke to a set of people in, in Wales who within their kind of street had actually all come together to start kind of donating more regularly to a food bank. Um, and sure, that that kind of gets started and kickstarted by one person, but actually the amount of kind of goodwill and everybody sort of coming in together um, there are there are simple simple ways, I guess, in in some respects, to start engaging some of these younger, um, not quite at the major donor giving stages just yet. It's really positive to hear both of you speak that there are encouraging signs within the sector, and it's all about relationships and about partnership building and making sure that relationship is mutually beneficial to both parties. And I think, particularly when it comes to major donor fundraising, it is the long game, but building relationships and partnerships is where you're going to get the transformational gifts in in the longer term and I think organizations can sometimes be very short-sighted in terms of looking at their internal KPIs their internal targets but actually 
it's more wider than that and you need to look at it. We do need to play the longer game here. And I'm not sure whether that's your experiences when working with charities. At the very beginning of this um, study, we did speak to a series of, of major donors. Um, and actually from those conversations, it was very clear that that, that desire to engage was, was very strong. As Lisa says, the kind of the being treated as a walking wallet is is absolutely not the not the thing to to have happen, um, but equally there was a, a much broader scale kind of rejection of some of the old the older kind of techniques I guess of major donor um, engagement um, and really um, a lot of positivity towards organisations that felt like they were to a degree they were already established organisations but actually they were organisations that were willing to take a risk and willing to bring some of those major donors on that journey with them. Not, not physically, but, you know, actually having them be part of those conversations, having them be part of the downloads in terms of what's worked and what hasn't and actually what can we do next. So it wasn't just a capitalisation of their of their ability to gift. It was also a capitalisation of their their thinking capacity, their skills um, outside of, of their simple kind of charitable knowledge. The only thing that I, I thought I might add is that I think that for those donors that Vic is talking about there, intersectionality is truly important and underpins everything that they do. So regardless of what type of organization they're donating to, they always still look at it through an environmental lens, through a racial equity lens, through a gender justice lens. And there are things which underpin their thinking, which they really understand because they've studied it, they've been part of it, they actually have engaged with it. And those, those types of donors are people that really can be engaged at this stage in their lives and their journey. Um, the donors that we looked at for the bulk of our survey haven't quite got to that understanding of how it all pieces together yet. And that's where we need to start taking the people who do understand it and using them to help educate the people that don't. Great points both. And when you're looking to engage major donors, it's not just a funding opportunity. It's also the networking, the skills, the experience, the insights, the knowledge of certain industries that can prove beneficial. So organisations can tap into that as well. And is that what you've found by talking to potential wealthy donors? At Beacon, we call it time, talent and treasure. So, um, you know, it's not like you said, it's exactly right. It's not just about giving money. It's about opening up networks. It's about mentoring charity leaders. It's about bringing on board new ideas. It's about supporting risk. It's about opening up other doors and other avenues of, of the ways to do things. And that is really important. Um, it's also about joining together and building relationships. So yeah, I think that there is work going on in that way and that lots of people are starting to engage in a much more wider um, view of how to support the charitable sector. Just going to say, just from the, um, the the younger, wealthier individuals that we spoke to, there was absolute recognition that some of their talents and kind of professional skills would would be very valuable and would be very useful. Um, but there was just this broad scale kind of lack of knowledge of how to go about actually making that happen. Um, so it almost felt like it would it would go from I'm clearing a community garden to suddenly I'm a trustee. And it didn't feel really like there was kind of anything in the middle to, to capture some of that ability to, to put together any comms experience that they've gotten and help um, charities on that side or or to look indeed in, at their research skills and how they might be able then to help um, charities on, on that side of things. Great point, Vic and Lisa. 
And we like to end with two quick fire questions. And so in your experience working in the voluntary sector, Vic, in your capacity as a giver and Lisa, in your capacity as a volunteer, what do you love about the charitable sector? And what is your frustration about the sector? Lisa, if you want to go first. Sure. So in my capacity as a volunteer, what I love is how it complements my day job. So my day job is a little bit more desk-based. It's a little bit more esoteric strategy thinking. My volunteering is spending time with refugee youths. We run a, a discussion group to try to help them understand what the, what on earth is happening in the UK and how they can fit into that. We are doing some social action projects with them. I've been also working with them to get them into cycling so that they have some freedom around London. And I love that interaction with people and the, the, the relationships that we've built with some of the young people over time are, are, are amazing. And we see them and we all have big smiles on our faces and it's just a really nice atmosphere. And, and we work together really hard to, to do things and learn from each other. So that's what I love. My broader frustration about the charity sector is probably that sometimes it's just too competitive. People will compete for money, which is understandable, but also for influence. The, there's a, a really fine line between competing with somebody and actually being destructive in, in what we're trying to do as a sector by creating your own individual need for everything. And I, I do find, especially in the international development space, that that is an incredible frustration when people aren't prepared to work together towards a common goal, because that's really what, as humanitarians, we should be doing. Just from my perspective, which is way more basic. <laughs> um, so I'm talking as a as a, a, a donor in, in my personal capacity. So one of the, the charities that I, I love giving to um, is very focused on wildlife within the UK. Now, for me personally, that started, that starts from a place of simply just loving the countryside and growing up in the West Country and enjoying all of the beautiful green space. Um, but one of the one of the things that I think is really important about it is, is twofold. One, they they provide an awful lot of resources for me to, to engage my children in that same space now that they live in the suburbs and are vastly um under-resourced in in that regards but but also they actually do their own kind of set of campaigns they do their own set of work now the frustration that comes out of that is that finding out about the campaigns that they're doing in terms of um of the the various like big broad scale steps that they're taking it feels like there is a big step for me and it's not really a big step but going to find out that that is happening Whereas actually all of the kids stuff is coming through all the time. So I can tell you how to build a, a hedgehog house and which birds are in my garden, but I cannot tell you off the bat without having to go and, and research all of the other really important, like bigger issue things that they're, they're working on. Thank you, Lisa and Vic, for sharing your insights with me today. And thank you on behalf of the charity sector, because your research will really help inform both organisations and fundraisers to more effectively engage with major donors. And I'm sure through the research, there will be transformational gifts that come in. And that's based on your hard work, um, both at Savannah and Beacon. Thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate having you on. And it was great talking to you both.
lovely to meet you too thank you very much for having us thank you it was very interesting Thank you to Lisa and Vic for sharing their insights with me today. The launch event, which I touched on in the conversation and which covers the report in more detail, can be found on our website at charitychat.org.uk. So please do check this out. We hope you found this conversation insightful and please do share your comments with us on social media or on our email, charitychatpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and that leads me to thank our corporate sponsors, Charity People, our platinum sponsor, Magda Aksumit for the website design, Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kit and Forest of Fools who have been playing throughout and are playing us out now.